This is a spoiler warning. We are going to spoil the episodes discussed in the show. It's also a free-flowing discussion. We're going to spoil pretty much most of the show aired to date. Uh, we'll do our best not to spoil any of the big finish range other than the episode that's discussed, but you are warned. Problem is, Perry, we are faced with a conundrum wrapped up in a dilemma. Hello and welcome to The Twin Dilemma, a Doctor Who fan podcast. In each episode, we watch one new Who and one classic and tell you indisputably, undoubtedly, no room for Fenric's opinions. Oh, that's sad. Which is best. Don't interrupt the intro. Those are the twins. That's the dilemma. And I'm your co-host, Edward Grove. And uh, I guess I'm uh, unwanted Fenric Lamar. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) No, today's theme is Dreamland. That's right. That means that the water Fenric is drinking has Rufinol in it. Oh. Yeah. So this will be a short episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the sex will be long and rigorous. Well, luckily I'll be having nice little dreams about Doctor Who. Because what it really means is that we're discussing surreal dreamscape-filled episodes of Doctor Who. And we'll start it off with our classic episode this week, The Mind Robber. I'd better get working on the TARDIS controls right away. A doctor? Mm? We're not actually in flight, are we? No, why? Well, then presumably we've landed. So why isn't the scanner showing anything? Well, because, well, we are nowhere. It's as simple as that. In this surreal adventure written by Peter Ling, the second doctor, joined by Jamie and Zoe, are thrown into the land of fiction, a world filled with characters from our literature and imagination. Now the TARDIS team must make their escape from this bizarre realm and the clutches of its mysterious master. All right, so Fenric Lamar, what do you think of the Mind Robber? I love the Mind Robber. The Mind Robber. Uh, It's a a super weird episode. If you're going into classic Doctor Who for like the old sci-fi psychedelia kind of thing, Mm -hmm. this is the episode for you. Oh, that's very interesting because it's almost not even science fiction. It's not. It's just fiction. Yeah. Oh. But really, it's it's like a fantasy story with a little window dressing of science fiction. They do like go to... I don't think they ever frame it in this way, but it's essentially a parallel dimension, sort of. Uh, not really. It's, it's, it's a world outside our dimension. Yeah, if we want to... we could, From our, our perspective today, we can call it that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a tremendously wonderful and imaginative episode starts right out the bat kind of spooky spooky uh, a little bit confusing but in like in the a really good way you know what i mean yeah there's actually like a a tone to these early doctors like one two mostly one and two and i would even i'd give the edge to two in this department yes because one i think you're really talking edge of destruction when you're talking about that like spooky confusing tone and then otherwise it's more boring confusing (laughs) (laughs) i think it's that like maybe we just don't know the doctor well enough but there's a sort of distance there that makes you not fully trust the things that he says yeah and there are times where they'll just let bits of dialogue or events linger you know they'll be like a kind of long shot and i think it has to do honestly probably with mistakes in production where something was supposed to happen a little bit tighter but instead 
there's just a little bit of a gap and there's just kind of a vacant space or in part one of the mind robber for example there are just sort of misty blank sets <laughs> and just characters kind of staring at each other so in part one when the doctor tells you that we've left the known universe and he doesn't know how to get back it's like shit i guess this is the end of the show and the first part goes on to be creepy as hell <laughs> it's just mist and weird white robots yeah, okay, so I want to talk briefly about the robots. I also wanted to talk about those robots. They're one of my least favorite things about the story. They get the trophy for most inexplicable thing in the episode, I think. They're there to be like the minions of this this uh, head honcho, right? And they're in the land of fiction. Yep. Like, it's such a missed opportunity. It could have been, I mean, this is a bad example, but an army of flying monkeys taken out of the book The Wizard of Oz. They could have played with, you know, fictional characters and make an army out of that. But instead, it's just, it's just robots. I agree completely. You even see later in the story, they basically do the same thing. They have toy soldiers. And so why do we have white, nameless robots that are minions, not only in this strange void? Because if they were just in the void, you could make an argument that they're actually a component of the master brain, right? They're not a part of this land of fiction. They're sort of part of this meta universe. I, I want to know why are they specifically white robots? Yeah. Like everybody keeps referring to them that way. Well, it's just, uh, you know, white robot supremacy. It does feel racial. <laughs> honestly. It does not feel racial. It feels racial. It's not, even, it's not even a feather of racial component to it. It's just the fact that it's black and white and they're specifically like, it's white. White all the time. They must be white robots. <laughs> well, what? it's true. Where are the black robots? Dead. But instead, we get these uh, these cool sets of these black things that they keep referring to as trees. Black things. Black things. Well, got to make a bridge there. <laughs> they never, ever look like trees. They just kind of look kind of strange. But I do really love the twist of them, which is that basically it turns out that they're words and they're kind of roaming around in this maze that must be like one giant page of a book. Yeah, once we're into the land of fiction, I guess it's a book. It's just a list of uh, aphorisms. Yes, that's right. So it's got to be a shitty book. <laughs> just a bunch of phrases. <laughs> There's like that shot that they're trying to make it look like it's an aerial shot oh, uh, yeah. of, of the top of the letters, and it doesn't look good, but it's like it serves. Sure, yeah. It services. <laughs> it gets by. Yeah. Yeah, once we're in the once we're in the land of fiction, I think we get a lot of really neat components. I, I feel like if this were New Who, we'd probably see a lot more characters. Yeah. But in this one, we primarily spend time with Gulliver. I said beware, false traitor, highwayman, robber, pickpocket, murderer. I think you must be making some mistake. Highwayman indeed. Gulliver meets the doctor and starts talking to him, and he's not speaking in English. Yes, I took note of that as well. Did the TARDIS translation concept not exist at this point? To be fair, the TARDIS has exploded. <laughs> but theoretically, it should still be functioning because it, it always lingers for a while. Well, are we talking about the logic of the show or... Logic of the show. Had they ever talked about that as a I concept I don't think yet? so. I, don't... I couldn't recall it happening, but it clearly was functioning because they could always still talk to people in different periods. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they actually nail that point down until New Who. I don't think any classic doctor says that's a function of the TARDIS. Oh, as in they don't actually attribute where it's coming from? Yeah. I did think it was interesting, though, that the doctor specifically says, Do you speak English by any chance? 
Sir, my birth was of honest parents in an island called England. Uh, You know, obviously that doesn't track anymore. Well, there's another odd moment in this, and this could be one of those lines they talk about. There's a sort of collection of these where you can look at certain lines and say, is this saying the doctor's human? They don't really make sense with the second doctor because he's regenerated. (laughs) (laughs) So it's this sort of a weird contradiction, right? They, They meet the master of the land of fiction. I see, yes. And only an Earthman-type creature has the power to create fiction, the power to imagine. Exactly. Yeah, that's strange. And then goes on to say, you know, plug it into the doctor. Well, I think that they specifically have that, like, type line, you know, so that it's easy to fit the the doctor snugly into that storyline. I, I don't I think you're you're giving them way too much credit. I think if they wanted to easily fit the doctor into the storyline they wouldn't have put that line in there at all. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. It, uh, it would be better without it. Yeah. We have to talk about the fact, the bad guy in this, we don't see him, uh, his face, I believe, until part four, but we keep hearing about him throughout. Yes, yeah. And they keep referring to him as the master. Yes. And of course, from our uh, hindsight perspective, it's really hard not to just be like, the master is in this story. It's very jarring. It's definitely something if you're going to recommend this, because in a lot of ways, this is a good first uh, classic for someone from New Who, I would say. Some caveats, it's not my first choice, but you could do a lot worse. But It's, it's very fast paced, which is usually the, the problem with classic Who. Yeah, certainly in terms of the sense of, like, there's a lot happening. Also, the episodes are really short. Very short episodes, very peppy. You got some great ass shots of Zoe, specifically one. I I had on my notes to try to mark down when Fenric brings up (laughs) Zoe's ass. Everybody look at your podcast now, see how long it took. (laughs) But that's one caveat. You'd have to tell them, when they say the master, it's not the master that will never become entirely clear that it's not the master because the master did not exist yet. This time I was trying to be like, could you slot the master into this story? And I was thinking like, maybe the master is in charge of that brain, which is sort of in charge of... Uh... Oh, the actual author? Yeah. But it, it is weird that that author, the serials that he wrote are called The Adventures of Captain Jack Harkaway. Did you ever hear of The Adventures of Captain Jack Harkaway? That, I did notice that, too, yeah. Well, we'll find out in a piece of trivia that people have actually attributed this story to a Time Lord, but not the Master. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> too obvious, man. I guess. We gotta talk about Jamie. We gotta talk about Jamie. Because Jamie does some fucking weird shit in this episode. Well, he has some plastic surgery. First of all, he, he yells his uh, classic catchphrase. Sure. Cregan Tour, or however it's pronounced. You're bolder than I. I would have said, uh, <laughs> put the clip here. And then he rushes at these soldiers and they they shoot him and suddenly he's turned into a cardboard cutout and the doctor has this little puzzle where he has to put his face back together with a bunch of slips of face pieces and he puts it together wrong and for an entire part and a half Jamie is just played by a different actor Yes, (laughs) which doesn't seem that weird in Doctor Who because that's like (laughs) you know such a concrete part of the show but it's super weird in this context it's so strange i think having his face cut up into pieces and then reassembled and turning into a different person who still has the same sort of consciousness in his body it's maybe one of the most psychologically traumatizing concepts ever introduced (laughs) in the show (laughs) 
you know, this happens twice in the story. Once he gets changed into this other actor and the other time he gets changed back into Frazier Hines. And I noticed, uh, I'd never thought about this before, that if he wasn't shot and he wasn't frozen, he would have just brutally murdered a man with a Bowie knife. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's classic Jamie, though. (laughs) There are probably countless times he did that just off screen. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. They would just sort of pull away at the last second. Oh, the kitties can't see that. He's just gutting a man again. There's also a part where he meets Rapunzel. Yes, that's right. And she has a weird role in the story. She just keeps showing up anytime somebody needs a rope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to ask you, do you think that Jamie banged Rapunzel? Yeah, I think he probably got into a little bit of light erotic asphyxiation. <laughs> but what's great is he could do them both at once. There's enough rope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, her hair... It's uh, good for many uses. It's like a bicycle built for two. We talked a little bit earlier about the the white robots. There's a funny moment where the doctor is being pursued by the robots, and he decides in a moment of desperation, he sees a shelf, and he scampers up it and yells, I've yet to see a robot that can climb! <laughs> yeah. And it's just funny. Classic had such weird ideas about like the limitations of future technology. It's like, control the weather? No problem. Faster than light travel? You got it. Climbing robot? Ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you build a robot with knees? Yeah, crazy. Think about it, Edward. Also, then the master should have just sent Gulliver up there, or the, the carcass. Yeah, the carcass. Well, I don't know. Gulliver and, and the carcass, their abilities to follow his commands are a little bit inconsistent from part to part. The carcass seems pretty on board with obeying people, but yeah, it's just... just obey anybody. Yeah, it's just once the doctor realizes he has full control over yeah. this universe that... The carcass becomes unusable. This world is filled basically with pretty much exclusively fictional characters. And then a shit ton of kids. Where did these fucking kids come from? Yeah, I was unclear about that as well. But they, they keep singing nursery rhymes. They do. I actually, I really love the very first scene with them. The kids rush the doctor and they kind of pin him and then they force him to solve this puzzle. Now, would you mind telling me... Which is correct. The yolk of an egg is white or the yolk of an egg are white? Neither. It's yellow. How many beans make five? I... Where was Moses when the lights went out? Well, I... Adam and Eve pinched me, went down to the river to bathe. Adam and Eve got drowned. Who do you think was saved? What I love about it is I feel like there are a lot of moments in the classic show where they were trying to find that balance between being educational and being a fun, crazy science fiction show. And most of the time in the first Doctor era, when they would lean into the educational component, it meant, in my opinion kind of boring historical stuff and i like that in this moment it meant a trippy surreal word puzzle it felt almost like we like changed the channel to sesame street for a second yeah in a a really good way Uh uh-huh because i think by the time the third doctor came around they basically gave up on that shit yes it was like what are kids like hover cars (laughs) old men with afros velvet coats whispering voices whispering voices with lisps Sexual innuendo. I don't know why I said that. That was, that was Pertwee's thing, sexual innuendo. Oh, yeah. That was like his catchphrases. He would just always be like, look at that nice round rumpus. Absolutely, round rumpus. <laughs> like, what are kids like? Aikido. <laughs> <laughs> now let's move on to some Mind Robber trivia. Working titles included Another World, The Fact of Fiction, and most puzzling, Manpower. <laughs> what yeah i don't know <laughs> there was no explanation maybe that's why that weird line is in there oh yeah i mean it is powered by a man yeah there was actually a huge uh, cut subplot all about rape as well 
Oh, okay. Yeah. That's why there's like gratuitous ass shot of Zoe. But there's nobody else with, well, I guess Jamie's with her right there. Who do you think? Yeah. Krav Maga or whatever he says. (laughs) (laughs) The story originally consisted of four parts, but after the Dominators was reduced to five episodes, Mind Robber was also stretched to five. Okay, so this was in the pre-production stage. Yes, and that's why the first part doesn't really have any sets, just uses robots from the other parts. This also led to many of the episodes being shorter than average. Most notable is episode five, which clocking in at just over 18 minutes is the shortest episode of Classic Who ever. Doesn't that also mean that it's the shortest episode of Doctor Who? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the only problem is if you consider certain things, quote unquote, episodes okay. or not. As you may have noticed watching this story, Fraser Hines is replaced in one episode by Hamish Wilson, as we discussed earlier. This was not actually a creative decision, but a result of Fraser Hines suddenly contracting chicken pox. So he was not one of those kids that his parents forced him to get chicken pox as a youngin. No, they gave him Ebola instead. Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. He got really lucky, though. <laughs> yeah, any other story, that would be super weird, but it kind of works. It does work. Like, once you know it, the way he turns into a paper thing is <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> But it definitely fits the dreamy vibe of the story. Fraser Hines was joined by his brother in this production, Ian Hines, who plays one of the soldiers. Like one of the the toy soldiers that you don't see their faces? That's right. Oh, okay. You've got to imagine he must have been a terrible actor not to get the part of Fraser Hines. <laughs> that's a very good point. Bernard Horsefall. <laughs> that's a good name. Uh, that's, that's the pronunciation as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> who plays Gulliver would go on to appear in three more classic stories, playing a Time Lord in the War Games, Teron in Planet of the Daleks, and Chancellor Goth in The Deadly Assassin. Yeah, and he's got one of those faces that's kind of recognizable. So you do see him and you're like, I swear this guy's been in here before. Well, and someone took to that idea because in the novel Future Imperfect, the Doctor would return to the land of fiction only to discover that the master of fiction was actually the Time Lord Goth all along. So was he Gulliver in disguise or something? I don't even read the fucking shit. Fuck you. (laughs) The character of Gulliver actually speaks exclusively in lines from Gulliver's travels. While the story is generally praised in retrospective reviews, the mind robber was very poorly received at the time, with complaints from the audience that it was too fantasy-oriented rather than being actual sci-fi and coming across as silly. It is silly, but that's kind of what's fun about it. I feel like it's odd because I guess you can kind of see it with the trajectory of the show, but Doctor Who now is fantasy sci-fi. Yeah. It's, it's very light sci-fi. Yeah, that's true. And it, I wonder if it also has something to do with just we have such slim pickings. When for it comes sci-fi to, now? No, with, uh, for Pat Troughton episodes. <laughs> like, this is one of his, you know, most recognizable stories. I mean, there, there's basically only one that's around that people don't like. Yep. You all know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, part one of The Mind Robber is the only episode in the history of Doctor Who to have no credited writer either on screen or in the Radio Times. It suggested it was written by the script editor, Derek Sherwin. I like to think that it was written by the master of the land of fiction. I'd never thought that before, but I do now. I thought you were going to say Fenric Lamar. <laughs> Maybe I am the master of the land of fiction. And then Edward Grove, you can't see what I'm typing. And then Edward Grove took a shit and died. Damn it, I did do those things. (laughs) 
Now it's time for our entry from New Who this week. Amy's Choice. So here's your challenge. Two worlds. Here, in the time machine, and there, in the village that time forgot. One is real, the other's fake. And just to make it more interesting, you're going to face, in both worlds, a deadly danger. But only one of the dangers is real. Tweet, tweet. Time to sleep. Oh. Or are you waking up? The 11th Doctor arrives in Upper Ledworth to visit Amy and Rory, who he hasn't seen in five years. Or has he? Suddenly they all wake up in the TARDIS together, circling a cold sun. One of these worlds is real, one's a dream, but which is which? And who is the mysterious enemy pulling the strings who calls himself the Dream Lord? So Edward, you gotta make a choice. Do you like it or dislike it? Amy's choice. (laughs) I choose a third option. I love it. Yes, I, I really like this one as well. Yeah, I think, uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't noticed, we've got two gems this week. Yeah, it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be a tight dilemma. It's gonna be a tight and saucy dilemma. Before we get to that, let's talk about Amy's Choice. Uh, this was, you know, what, five episodes, I believe, into Series 5? So, very early Matt Smith. Yeah, it's sort of crazy to think how early it is, and they did something that captures all the characters so well, and not only that, but still delivers a unique, innovative, and surprising story. Yeah, this is like prime ponds. Absolutely. Uh, Amy and Rory, this is, you know, before in their storyline, before they started to get warped a little bit, they start to become like superheroes. You know, Rory literally is immortal for a little while. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No exaggeration. (laughs) And they're a real couple. They have a, they're a couple with real disagreements i just realized rory's problem is that he becomes immortal amy's problem is she becomes annoying (laughs) it's she really got the short end of that stick they could have at least given her some superpowers she becomes super annoying (laughs) they they do uh, get her kidnapped and force her to have a weird baby (laughs) so even her baby has superpowers her baby can regenerate she can't do shit yeah she gets a terrible deal in terms of the character flaws (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they're a real couple in this with Absolutely. with real arguments about, you know, they've got this huge disagreement about what their future is like together. Yeah. And it's funny because I didn't think of this episode and I think of the plot, honestly. I, I think of the plot and I think of how incredibly solid and compelling the plot is. And I forget, this is a really pivotal episode for their dynamic. It definitely foretells where they're going together. The intentional duality of the title, of course, is that it's not just about choosing between these two worlds, but it's about Amy choosing between Rory and the Doctor. Which, in hindsight, is a little weird. When we look back on it, it's like there's a whole little exchange in this where the Doctor and Rory have this kind of odd discussion. We have to agree which battle to lose, all of us, now. Okay, which world do you think is real? This one. No, the other one. Yeah, but are we disagreeing or competing? Competing over what? And it's just kind of weird to look back at and remember that at some point, Amy really was running away with the Doctor. I mean, she totally was. I honestly think this episode and that relationship dynamic is accurate and true to their characters all the way up to power of three. (laughs) Where it's like, is Amy going to choose a life of adventure or is she going to be able to have a domestic normal life? And that's the real arc of her character. 
And then suddenly Angels Take Manhattan swoops in and just, and just shits all over that. Yeah, what the fuck happened there? It takes a big angel ship. But honestly, I think that's it. Everything else about her character, her relationship with the doctor, her journey is about that decision. Can she be happy with a life on Earth? Is that enough for her? And I don't think so. I mean, she keeps telling herself that she can, but it's like, how do you give up the TARDIS, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think the whole message of Doctor Who is that a, a normal life on Earth is enough and is something to relish and enjoy. So her vision of this future that we see in this, uh, Upper Ledworth, Rory has a ponytail, which it makes for some great humor. And a great ponytail. And it's just a great <laughs> overall look. Yeah, it's funny. His style hasn't actually changed except for his hair, and it just looks bad in it every way possible. It brings it all down. <laughs> it's a heavy ponytail. And then Amy, of course, is pregnant. Pregnant as fuck. Yeah, about to pop. Which leads into a, a great little moment where the doctor calls her life dull. Yeah. And then suddenly she's about to give birth. Ah! Okay, you're a doctor, help her. You're a doctor, it's okay, we're a doctor. What do we do? Okay, it's not coming. What? This is my life now, and it just turned you white as a sheet, so don't you call it ill again. Ever. Okay. See, Amy's scolding you right now, a second ago, saying, how can you not choose the doctor? Yeah, but I mean, how do you not choose the doctor? (laughs) You just want to get felt up by Matt Smith. I just want him to, like, lube up his weird lumpy head and just, like, I bet it would make for, like, a good back massager if he just, like, scraped it up my back. Yeah, it vibrated a little bit. Like, I'll just have him hum while he does it. You probably sell Mm. that. Vibrating Matt Smith back massager, but put back massager in quotes. (laughs) (laughs) If that that isn't on sale yet, we'll we'll cash in. And sell it in another box that just says, cunnilingus machine. (laughs) Toby Jones is in this episode. Oh, Toby Jones. We've got to talk about the Dream Lord. I wanted to ask you this. Do you think, because I I think there's a legitimate claim to this, best one-off villain of the Matt Smith era? Give me a second to think about this. Yeah, I think you're right. I think so. I think the combination of concept, material, and performance is just too good. Mm -hmm. Here's part two. How delusional am I for constantly hoping he's going to come back? <laughs> yeah, that's a. It's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I I could see Toby Jones coming back to the show, but not the Dream Lord. So you think he'd play a different role? Yeah, like they put him in heavy makeup. He's already kind of alien looking ish. Uh, okay, in heavy makeup, that's interesting because I, I think a new Who audience would be a lot less tolerant to just seeing Toby Jones walking around and not playing the Dream Lord yes. than the way you could do in classic. There, there are totally ways you could make that work, though. He's such a great actor. He, I want the Dream Lord back. Honestly, I would love for yeah, I would love for him to play a recurring villain. He would be so good. What, what would you think if uh, if he came back as the Dream Lord, looked the same, but for another Doctor? You feel like that would be appropriate? Yeah, I'd be fine with that. Me too. Because it's like his core. You know, it it doesn't have anything to do with Matt Smith. He is wearing a bow tie, but he even says, you know, Matt Smith. No, I'm not convinced. Bow ties? He's like, bow ties aren't cool, bitch. (laughs) He does say that, and then he slaps Matt Smith with his cock. Yeah, it's an odd scene. Is that a deleted scene, maybe? Just the cut we watched? And it's like, you know how he, like, teleports the room? He teleports to, like, right in front of his face, but, like, floating a little bit, which is what allows him to get that nice cock slap in. I thought the craziest thing was that 
the the radius of his dick was actually the the full height of Toby Jones. <laughs> That's just the radius. Wait, too. so like, how do you even see Toby Jones behind it? You don't. <laughs> so it's just like a big floating dick. Yeah, I thought. I mean, it was let's, an odd choice. Let's just have that be the Dream Lord. Just a big floating dick. Big floating dick smacking people around. None of this dialogue shit. We don't need that. Well, I remember watching this episode for the first time. Uh, as I said, super early on in Matt Smith, but that also means it's a super early on in Stephen Moffat. And, you know, everything was new. We all had such high, high hopes for what Stephen Moffat was going to do as a showrunner. And once this episode starts, Toby Jones steps in, he's wearing the bow tie. You couldn't help but feel like, is this guy the master? Oh, Especially because there's a lot of teases in there where it's like, you know, they make a passing remark about how the Dream Lord has always known him. And, of course, there's that part where the, uh, the 11th Doctor says, Drop all of it. I know who you are. Of course you don't. Of course I do. No idea how you can be here, but there's only one person in the universe who hates me as much as you do. How do you feel about that? See, I wanted to ask you that because it's one of my, my really only quibbles in the episode is that I find that it's much too obvious that the Dream Lord is the Doctor in some way. As I said, the the first time I saw it, I was leaning towards the Master, and I was kind of excited about that. And so I find it very easy to slip back into that mindset. Like, obviously, I know, you know, I've never forgotten, and I'm never surprised anymore. Uh-huh. But I would be concerned. <laughs> I, I if I was just straight up forgetting. You were actually still being like, is it the Master? Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we've both seen this episode six times. At least. Yeah. But uh, specifically, how do you feel about the idea that the doctor straight up says that he he's the person in the universe who hates himself the most? I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's, in at least some sense, a truism about everyone. Because uh, you're the only person who has the complete inventory of your faults from your own perspective. That's a good way of looking at it. I've always kind of viewed it as like, I can see David Tennant saying that, especially because he's like still so much in the wake of the time war. But Matt Smith just seems too peppy. Well, I think that's really the beauty of Matt Smith's Doctor is that I think it's captured so well in this episode and kind of in the perfect dichotomy of the Doctor and the Dream Lord. You have your really upbeat, fun episodes, and then you have your Beast Below. Is that he he could go really dark. Yeah, he had a great range. Yeah, and he, he caught you off guard with it. So when you think of the 11th Doctor, you tend to think of the fun, bouncy side. But that dark undercurrent was always present. Dangerous undercurrent. God damn you. Don't reference the second episode of the podcast <laughs> slash Curse of Fenric that n- nobody has heard at this point. Hey, if you haven't listened to every single episode, you're not a real fan. <laughs> That's uh, episode two, Gods and Monsters of the Twin Dilemma, for anybody who wants to become a real fan. Yeah, get on it. We'll send you a sticker. That's not true. Yeah, no, no stickers. Someday I'll make a sticker and I'll send it to you. Stop making promises of stickers. There's a weird moment in this where the 11th Doctor has like commandeered a van and he's sort of driving it around town in the the Ledworth dream. And Toby Jones appears in the back seat and he's wearing the Stiggs outfit. What? From Top Gear? Yeah. He's like wearing like an, a bright... Well, the, the jumpsuit is wrong. It's like a bright orange jumpsuit. One's one piece. Okay. Wait, I'm settling this right now. You can't have the jumpsuit wrong... And be wearing the Stiggs outfit. But then what, what the fuck was the point of it? The only thing I could think was that it was a joke that secretly the Dream Lord was the Stig. Because the helmet is exactly right. Isn't it just a helmet? It's, a, it's like a helmet and I think he wears like a white suit as well. But Okay, but that's what I'm saying is the whole Stig outfit 
is the helmet being white and the jumpsuit being white. Hey, I didn't write the script. I don't know what the hell they're going for. <laughs> Listen, that's like saying he was dressed exactly like James Bond, but no tuxedo. Maybe he's wearing a Daniel Craig mask. <laughs> then he would have been dressed like Daniel Craig. He would make a good Bond villain. All right, okay, all right, I see we're moving on from the stick thing, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> I want to ask you a question here. Uh, for fear of running into some potential trivia, is this the only episode of Doctor Who that you can think of where the last words of the episode are the title? I mean, I would have to spend some time that I don't want to spend right now thinking about it. Oh, you know what? Uh, the Vampires of Venice. When uh, uh, the 11th Doctor has that line where he goes, I just fucked the Vampires of Venice. Right, of course. Yeah. And then he he uh, he nuts. <laughs> and then it just slams to credits. It was a weird, like, ongoing storyline in uh, Matt Smith's time that uh, every episode ended with him nutting. Well, it's what caused the crack. <laughs> the cracks in the skin of the universe. <laughs> Don't you think you should stop nutting? <laughs> That's what Olivia <laughs> Coleman says in uh, 11th Hour, right? Yeah, but he can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. What is it that uh, uh, Clara always says? Run, you clever boy and nut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. It's our catchphrase. Now that we've all finished. Hey. It's time for some trivia. This is the first episode of Series 5 to not feature the cracks in any way. Uh, I wonder if that contributes in any way to its pure evergreen quality. It still fits in with that Series 5 storyline. I mean, literally the TARDIS blows up in this episode, which is kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the finale. Oh, I see what you mean by the TARDIS blows up in this episode. Yeah, I thought you meant it actually blows up because it's a, it's a dream. So it, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but you know what I mean? Like this one really, really does stand out as like a total one-off. It is also the first time since Rose to feature a companion's name in the title. Oh, interesting. What about... Uh, Rory's fuck nuts. There's too much nutting happening in this episode. Rory's nutting adventure. I have nothing to say to you. What about the time Rory nutted? Isn't that pretty much the same as the first one you said? What about the nut and Rory? <laughs> the terror of Rory's nut. What about the, the nut of the Rory? <laughs> That's a classic episode, was I think. The writer of this story, Simon Nye, was actually a sitcom writer by trade, and this was his first dip into sci-fi. Huh, that kind of makes sense because it's, it's so peppy and so funny. I could sort of see a sitcom background to it. Yeah, but there's the whole storyline with like the, the cold star, which feels like something uh, a sort of campy sci-fi writer would come up with. I mean, same thing about the aliens inhabiting the old people's bodies. That's a great little concept. It's I love a, that. It feels like tried and true Doctor Who at the same time. The idea of elderly people as the monster was inspired by his own fear of old people as a child. I thought he meant like present day, like he was still cripplingly afraid of old people. <laughs> <laughs> he did, however, say that he never intended to make the episode make you afraid of your own grandparents. Well, too late. I killed my grandparents. Because of this episode? Oh, uh, unrelated. Then you have nothing to fear. Karen Gillan apparently got extra silly on set while wearing the latex pregnancy suit calling it her favorite part of filming the series. I would love to know what extra silly actually meant. Do you think it was like, hey, Matt Smith, kick me in the stomach? <laughs> <laughs> Let's make this baby come out quicker. <laughs> the old folks home was called Sarn, which is coincidentally a planet visited by the fifth doctor in Planet of Fire. There's no reason to believe it is intentional in any way. 
Arthur Darville accidentally broke the wood plank prop during a take of him whacking Mrs. Hamill. It was the only one they had. Luckily, it was also the last take. <laughs> so wait, was that not a uh, a cricket bat? No, it's like a big block of wood. Oh, I always thought that was a cricket bat. You know, I am a cricket expert. Oh, yes. Yeah, so we've so we've learned on this podcast. You sure know how to bat the wicket. I bowl. I bowl the wickets. How how, how much do you bowl? Uh, many. Good. Uh, let's move on. That was rude of you to ask. If you were a true cricketer, you'd know. That's impolite. You're supposed to curtsy while asking. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I did. Nobody can see. I guess you can see, but fuck you. <laughs> the Dream Lord bears many similarities to another Doctor Who villain, the Valyard. It's actually interesting. I didn't think about it until right now, but with the addition of John Hurt's Doctor... That means that Matt Smith is actually the 12th Doctor. Oh, interesting. So the Valyard would make sense if maybe when he blows those weird pebbles out into space, yeah, that's he, the he Valyard going out. Space load, yeah. yeah. I remember hearing he nuts some... nuts into space. Yeah, nuts to space, yeah. I remember hearing some uh, weird uh, Dream Lord Valyard theories a while back, but that I, uh, they were all pre-50th, so they actually, uh, yeah, they get a little bit more credence now, even though they're obviously not true. Now that that's done, it's time for the Dilemma. No, you have got to make a choice. It's time for Edward's Choice. Which episode are you going to go with? Well, I think it's a really tough pick this week. These are two episodes that are so good. I think they're they're very hard to pick one over the other. But ultimately, I think the superior episode is Amy's Choice. You bitch upon bitches. I, yeah, it's it is a hard pick. To be fair, I love both these episodes deeply, but I also have to go with Amy's choice, and you know what that means. It's time for uh, Fenric to struggle to find a coin. It looks like yes, it looks like somebody has not brought the one thing they're responsible to bring to the podcast: their dick. Oh, I brought my dick. All right, so uh, Fenric acquired some assistance from a social worker, but he has now managed to put together 25 cents it's my entire fortune i feel like i've gotten to call basically every time for like the last 10 coin flips and you should probably get to call sometimes all right i am going to call tails Ooh, he manages the catch i, I almost lost that one it is heads oh the mind robber is one of the second doctor's most iconic episodes for a reason it's easy to watch it's fun it's fast-paced it's got great companions in it. Zoe and Jamie are the second Doctor's best TARDIS team. They're iconic. I agree with all those points. I think you know what we're going to run into here as we talk about these two episodes, and we said it before we even got to the coin flip, is that these are two, I mean, probably 10 out of 10 episodes. Yeah. If they're not 10 out of 10, they're 9 out of 10. There's no other option. There, there's no way you're dropping either of these down to an 8 out of 10. Well, I would say Mind Robber is a 10 out of 10, <laughs> and Amy's Choice is a 3 out of 10. I, I'm, I'm trying to be fair to you here before I destroy you later. <laughs> <laughs> but everything you said about the Mind Robber is equally true about Amy's Choice. Action-packed? No doubt. Best TARDIS team? Is this the 11th Doctor's best artist team? Yeah. I mean, all, the only other option he has is Clara. Clara. Once you actually start comparing them, it starts to become clear that the edge goes towards Amy's choice. You know, I love Zoe and Jamie. I actually think it's a, a pretty darn good 
story for Zoe, who ends up getting uh, not terribly treated, but a bit shit on in some stories. She doesn't get to be as smart as she is. This one, she gets to be fairly smart. There's one part in particular where it bothers me in the mind, Robert, where she won't just say the thing is fake. Yeah, and that happens like three or four times. Yeah, and it's like, come on, you figured this out very early. I feel like they they switched a few moments into the sequence of when they should have happened. They find out that all you need to defeat all the monsters in the land of fiction is to say that they're fake and to believe that they're fake. And then they have all these conflicts with different creatures, the Medusa, the carcass, you know, the unicorn. We can't forget the unicorn. the unicorn. I feel like Jamie's ancestors must have been so embarrassed of him just shitting his kilt over a goddamn unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "We can't be. It can't be stopped, Doctor. This is the end. It's a fucking unicorn. <laughs> it's a horse with a pointy thing." Yeah, he didn't even know the word unicorn. Yeah, like that's that's really the thing that strikes fear into your little heart. But I think if they'd inverted it and they'd made them fight more of those challenges first, then discover the solution there would have been a little bit more more drama. And I don't think you had that issue with Amy's Choice. I think Amy's Choice really balances the plot in such a way where there is a constant bifurcated sense of jeopardy. Well, let, let me interject there and say there is one thing that always bothers me about Amy's Choice, and it's not a big problem. It's not, but they're spending so much time trying to show the, the mindsets of... Uh, Amy and the doctor specifically about this lifestyle in Ledworth that were shown, both of them are kind of against it. They, they think it's dull. I mean, obviously when Amy's in that world, she's like, no, this is my life. Don't call it dull, but it's dull, you know, <laughs> but then, yeah, she's a, uh, she's more of two minds about it, but the way Karen Gillan's playing it, you can tell she wants that TARDIS life. You know, she has that, she talks to Rory when they're finding the ponchos, I think. And she says, how could we have given this up? Yeah, but the, the thing that's weird about that to me is I don't think that the story fully does a good job of showing you that because there's two storylines going on here. One's in Ledworth and it's like super exciting. It's fast paced. There's van driving into buildings. There's old people and the doctor has to like lock himself in a meat closet. And then the, there's the TARDIS story, which is supposed to be, you know, showing that that's like the exciting part of her life that she doesn't want to give up. And it's kind of boring. Well, I think you're significantly overstating things by saying that part's remotely boring. It moves way too fast. The dialogue's way too good. The character arcs are way too rich to say any of those TARDIS scenes are boring. But I do agree with part of the premise of what you're saying, which is that there's an inequity in yes, the story. It's, the, Ledworth is so much more of an interesting story. Ledworth is a full episode of Doctor Who. And what's happening in the TARDIS is one obstacle. Because I agree with that. I agree that I've always felt that, that why isn't it two actual full parallel stories? But I think the reason is there needed to be room for the character arcs. And realistically, a lot of that dialogue happens as they're moving around the TARDIS really quickly. And the truth is, while that inequity exists, I don't think it damages the episode in any substantial way. To be fair, it's a hugely ambitious episode. I mean, imagine being Stephen Moffat and the guy like comes to you with the beats of the script that he wants to write. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I got these two fucking episodes. Also, this is what's going on with Amy and Rory. And yeah. You'd be worried. Yes. But when I read the script, I would have creamed my jeans. <laughs> you would have nutted. I would have said, one new jeans, please. <laughs> because the execution is spectacular. 
Yeah. I really think Amy's Choice delivers on everything you could want in an episode of Doctor Who. Humor, uh, heart, twists, drama. The Mind Robber is a very atypical episode of Doctor Who, and it delivers on a lot of things that you didn't know that you wanted in the show. It's fanciful and imaginative in, in ways that, I mean, the show is always imaginative, but it's not straight up having a weird word puzzle appear on screen in front of the doctor for him to solve. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's one thing that Mind Robber has that Amy's Choice is not going to be able to touch, which is that it took steps for the show because of that imagination. You know, it took a step forward, basically saying, we can have stuff that's a bit more fantasy. Even though it really remains more of an outlier, it pushed the boundaries for the show in a way that Amy's Choice doesn't. And I think you can take that point, and I think while it's got imagination, it doesn't have the same kind of heart and emotion that Amy's Choice has. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one thing that it does kick Amy's ass... Amy's ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's very violent. All right, so domestic abuse, guilty of domestic abuse. It kicks Amy's pregnant ass. My God. The uh, cruelty just adds up. <laughs> It's uh, Mind Robber's got some fantastic tone and atmosphere that Amy's Choice, I don't think there's enough room in the episode for something like that. Mind Robber, it's, it manages to be frightening in the beginning and then move into more adventurous and fun. Like the, the last part literally has an, uh, a fight scene where they're just conjuring up like Blackbeard versus <laughs> Lancelot. It's super fun. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, to be fair, Amy's Choice still has fantastic tone. You know, the the choice of hearing the bird song as they're switching in and out of, you want to say consciousness, but it's realms of uh, dreamscape, basically. And the moment when the, the doctor is fighting to stay awake in the butcher shop. That's such a great scene. It's fantastic. And part of that is the tone is excellent. You're talking more about like overt stylishness. Yeah. And an overtly stylized tone wouldn't serve that story. When I, when I was thinking about that argument, my, my first thought was like, the only moments that really make me think about that in Amy's Choice are when the Dream Lord shows up. Yeah. And in, in which case, that becomes very, you know, he, he's not so much spooky, but, uh, I mean, he, he literally calls himself spooky, but <laughs> he, he's kind of more uh, mind-fucky, you know? And I love the way he feels. I mean, how about this? The moment when Matt Smith looks at the TARDIS console and sees the Dream Lord's reflection. Oh, that's so good. And it, it totally plays into what we were just talking about, about maybe the Valiard is out there yeah, and he blew the things. I think it's everything it should be for the episode. No, there's no misty corridor with white robots, but would that add anything to Amy's Choice? I think Amy's Choice could have been a little bit better if they had a sequence where he had to rearrange Amy's face <laughs> and had her like suddenly played by, I'm trying to think of another redheaded British actress that isn't already on the show. Kate <laughs> Winslet? Is she redhead? I'm yeah, sure she has been at British. some point. She's British. <laughs> is she? Yeah. Yeah, she's redheaded, right? Yeah. She's not Scottish, though. Okay. I was, I was trying to think if she was one of those surprise Australians. How about this? Uh, she'll just be played by Mel Gibson from Braveheart. Oh, okay. Well, I think we both touched on some really interesting stuff about both the episodes. And, you know, we came into this with an agreement and I uh, think we're going to stick with it. These are both gems. They're great. They're great, great episodes. And I think we can agree that the Mind Robber wins. <laughs> I think you have to make a slight revision to that 
I'm going to be one of those little kids holding a sword to your throat <laughs> until you uh, puzzle out and change that last sentence. Yeah. Uh, Amy's Choice is a superior episode, but it's 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 close, you know, it's close. It is. It's funny here because a lot of times the arrangements we choose make them harder to compare for some reason. You know, we have a theme and it ends up where the episodes are actually more difficult to compare for some reason along that theme. This time we've got two great episodes, but they were so similar, I think it made it hard not to clearly see that Amy's choice was just a little bit better in all the in all the reasonable metrics. Yeah, I can see what you mean by that. You know, other than the fact that uh, the mind robber really laid down the pathway, Amy's choice just takes it and runs with it. Looks like I'm not nutting tonight. Ah, don't worry. I'll nut on you. I mean for you. <laughs> I mean both, I mean, you know. Hey, I'll take what I can get. That's my choice. I'm Amy now. I'm the Amy now. <laughs> now that the dilemma is taken care of, we'll move on to our bonus this week. Another entry from Big Finish. It's Circular Time Winter. Is this what I asked for? A wife who points out my mistakes? I do have a mind of my own. We seem to like that. I want to be here. I want to stay here. Well, that's nice, dear. Why is something going to come and haul you away that thing out there in the barn in this story written by paul cornell we dive into the fifth doctor's mind during his final moments but the last minutes of his regeneration aren't spent fondly recalling his companions rather it becomes a psychic battle with the master over control of his next regeneration so fenric lamar what do you think of winter this is a really, really great story. It is really great. And actually, you know, we let's do a little bit of uh, intro for anybody who might not be quite up to speed. As you said, this is Circular Time Winter. Circular Time being a main range release consisting of four short stories. We're talking about one of those short stories. It's called Winter. Yeah, so, each one obviously named after a season. Spoilers! <laughs> hey, speaking of spoilers, in your introduction, you, you spoil what's one of the best parts of the, the story. Which is that we don't know outright that it's Five's regeneration. It's true. Honestly, uh, I would love to go into this knowing nothing. So if you've gotten this far, you're fucked. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a cool little story where it starts out and you don't know what's going on. You have no idea what's going on. Uh, five is there and he's got a wife. You're like, is this even Five? It's Peter Davison. But what's happening? Yeah, because they also keep describing him as being older. Yes. So, like, do you, when you listen to it, do you picture current days Peter Davison? Yes, and actually that's one of the reasons this is one of my favorite Fifth Doctor audios is because, sorry, Peter Davison, your voice has aged worse than any of the other Doctors. Honestly, I think it's worse than Tom Baker's. I don't know if he smokes like a chimney, but it, it sounds like he gargles lava every morning. Yeah, it, it's gotten kind of gravelly. He sounds 125 years old. <laughs> and so I cannot listen to a Fifth Doctor audio and imagine the Fifth Doctor as he was on TV. I can't do it. But this story, it's supposed to be an older Fifth Doctor. And so I get to listen to it and imagine older Peter Davison and it all works. It's also really nice because if you go it by it logically... The fifth doctor's life must have been like hella short. Short and horrible, really. Because there's no gap anywhere. There's no gap between any of his companions, which means that there's not really room for him to be off there. I mean, Big Finish is kind of 
resolved that by a little yeah yeah they've basically written holes in there think about where they managed to squeeze this one in (laughs) that's that's a yeah they they on on screen (laughs) in about five seconds of airtime so basically at the end of caves of androzani the fifth doctor is on the ground in the tardis and he's dying and we see the faces of his companions his past companions circling around him like calling out to him and then at the end, it goes kind of green, and the, the face of Anthony Ainley's master shows up, and he goes like, Die, Doctor! Die! Yeah, they loved their weird-ass regeneration sequences during a JNT's era. So this is kind of like a, a half-hour representation of what's actually happening in his mind. Yeah, it's like, hey, what the moment. fuck was that? And now we know. And he got a watcher out of it. Can you see him? Yeah. Right at the edge of the farm. It's hard to see him. He's all in white, like a mummy, bound up. I'm not sure. No, Lasati there. Against the trees. He's moving. He's walking away. Oh, I love that. The Watcher. I thought you were going to hate that because you see, you're always weirded out by the fact that The Watcher only happens once. I fucking love that because I love The Watcher. I do think the, the Watcher is, you know, evidence of a show that didn't know what it was doing or wanted to change what it was doing regarding regeneration. But I've always thought The Watcher was super cool. For me in Legopolis, no, we'll talk about Legopolis when we talk about Legopolis. <laughs> but uh, what did you think about The Watcher? Did you like The Watcher being in there? To me, I actually like the idea that The Watcher is a one-off thing. I like that in classic, no two regenerations were really the same. Uh, I mean, New Who's essentially abandoned that. They've just well, straight up I mean, said... They're mixing it up a little bit now. But it, it still, it looks the same, yeah, right? Yeah, they got the same effects every time. Yeah. But I, I liked the idea that there was like a weird thing that showed up and four was just on board. And he's like, oh yeah, that's me. Didn't you know? Yeah. I see, I liked it because I liked the way they did it since it's in his head and he showed up with a watcher. And so if he's thinking about regeneration, why wouldn't it be represented in his mind as a watcher? Because this, this sort of old timey barn that he's living at is filled with symbols that are sort of confused. And so, of course, there would be a watcher to me. It, it made sense. I, I do really like the scene where it's him and Nyssa and it stops being a watcher and you can tell that it's just straight up Colin Baker's doctor because yeah. they're like talking about him. He never says anything, but they're clearly looking at him and talking about the doctor's future. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool. I want to talk about my favorite moment like that. My favorite little bit of dream symbolism in the fifth doctor's head again it's the the doctor and nissa because nissa's made the psychic connection with the doctor and entered into his mind and they're talking it's a working farmhouse we have animals in shelters down the field in summer they forage in the forest at the back at the front on the other side of the road there's a cricket pitch i play for one team against another it's under snow now in summer i spend most of my time there and of course in the old barn out the back we have a coffin i'm sorry a coffin the machine for exploring the forest, you know, goes softly on, the way one's whole life flashes before one, just before one dies. No, that can't be right. He's got this coffin sitting there that he doesn't really understand what it's for or what it's about, but it's just sitting in the back and he knows it's for exploring the woods. It has this kind of like, you know, Robert Frost death <laughs> vibe. And I just love that. That's just like planted in his mind, but he can't quite see it. I imagine it uh, floating like uh, the hand of Omega back there i did too yeah yeah i pictured it exactly as hand of omega maybe that's just because we just watched yeah. remembrance i just love that that moment gave me chills and when the coffin starts knocking actually that's i thought i don't know about you i thought colin baker was gonna be in there <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I've listened to this one before, and I still expected him to show up at some point, like just to say a line, but yeah. he doesn't. It, it's good he didn't. He was a yeah. real prick when he showed up. <laughs> Can you imagine the shitting on him he would be doing? Oh, it's you. Look at you dying like a bitch. <laughs> I can't wait to be me. You confused old bastard. So effete. <laughs> Paul Cornell has some like really uh kind of like he slides some like witty foreshadowing into this absolutely my favorite one this is the the fifth doctor is finally starting to remember things and i believe it's a uh, lizarty nissa's husband she's now married by the way who says to him we traveled together in the tardis now you're getting it don't speak so soon we're not out of the caves yet i, I just that's a just a great little line because at that time we still don't really know what's going on yeah Honestly, the thing that impressed me most about Paul Cornell's writing in this was the way he captured emotion. Because most of the time, I don't think of that being his skill set. I think about it more to do with the way he captures imaginative alien worlds and things like that. But then he does have stories that have a great deft handling of emotion. You know, uh, I know Russell Lee Davies contributed to it a great amount, but he wrote Human Nature and Family of Blood. But this is probably the only story I've ever experienced where I actually cared about Nyssa. <laughs> yeah, that's a feat. Seriously. Like, I don't know if you felt that way, you know, because she never actually saw him die, but she had this experience where she connected with him psychically that could have been a dream. So in her mind, she wants to always imagine that he's still out there and that he's still alive. I suppose if I never meet him again and grow old myself, I'll have to say that was the last time I saw him. In a dream... But without evidence, I'll say to people that I know he's still alive. Somewhere out there. I'll know he's still traveling. I'll know that he's still having adventures. I'll know he always will be. And I can't imagine, an, I literally can't remember another line of dialogue where I've ever even cared what Nissa has said. <laughs> Poor Nissa. Five really had like the lowest average of good companions. Yeah, I mean, you can express that far more negatively, and it's still true. Speaking of which, Chameleon shows up in this. Yeah, that's, isn't that a, a weird one? <laughs> yeah, nobody was expecting that. But it's actually, it, uh, it turns out he's kind of like the reason for what's going on. That's right, yeah. Basically, the master is trying to keep the doctor from regenerating. He's doing that through the sort of mental link he's built through Chameleon. God damn it, Chameleon. You can't do, like, anything good. A mistake on so many levels. <laughs> Big Finish has this understandable reputation for being for hardcore fans. You know, despite lots of highly accessible stories that are really amazing and that new Who viewers who've really only even seen a few episodes would enjoy. But this is one of the most inside baseball stories I've ever heard out of them. Yeah, I don't remember. Do they ever in like dialogue concretely like nail down this is what's going on? They kind of do, but it's through like a cascade of obscure references. Yeah. It's you, like, you really, good luck to, if you haven't to, seen all, like pretty much everything from the Fifth Doctor era. To really enjoy it, you need to have watched Caves of Androzani or at least the, the regeneration sequence and know it well enough to really remember that weird shot of all the companions and the master. Because once you put those two pieces together, it really enriches the story. Yeah, you absolutely need that. And then to get all the candy out of it, you really need to be a goddamn dirty nerd. And we are. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> I have one more question for you. 
So this is a, a very short story, probably just a little over half an hour. And I did find myself wanting a little bit more out of it. And probably the main thing I wanted more out of was just more master, just a little bit more master. Did you feel that way or was there any, anything more you wanted from the story? No, not necessarily, but uh, I, I see where you're coming from because he doesn't really appear. You know, he's he's like a face in the sky and we... Yeah, yeah, he cackles a bit. We can hear some laughter. I don't know if they actually took Anthony Ainley's laughter or if they got somebody to record got it. but some cackling. Yeah, you know, it sounds like Anthony Ainley. It's too bad because, you know, he's uh, ex-Anthony Ainley. He is dead. He dead. He dead. So it would it would be great, you know, to have him show up, but... And with that, it's time for some winter trivia. Fenric, did you know that it gets cold in the winter? Uh, I've heard that. You know, I may have Googled the wrong thing. We, we live in Los Angeles, so it doesn't so much. Stop doxing us. <laughs> in this story, the doctor compares his regenerative abilities to the Buddhist concept of reincarnation. This could be a reference to Planet of the Spiders, but probably isn't. Yeah, there's a lot of Buddhist shit in that story. There sure is. And spiders, because those go hand in hand. This could be a reference to spiders. Paul Cornell once referred to this story as a weird fan service thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true, but it... It's, it was sort of sadly dismissive for how good it is. Yeah. But I, I get where he's coming from. It's not, it's not that fan service-y. Like, it would, be, it would be much more so if Matthew Waterhouse and Janet Fielding, like, actually made appearances, you know? It's fan service in that the only real audience for it is fans, but I think it's too good and interesting to mean what fan service usually means, which is sort of a low-hanging fruit, what the fans are already asking for. Yeah. However, there is a little bit where there's some weird odd shipping where it turns out that like in this weird fantasy, the, the fifth doctor's kids are named Adric and Tegan. And he mentions that they're up in bed together. Okay. So you think those babies were fucking? Yeah. I do. Touche. Fan service confirmed. And I picture them as like little kids, but with like Tegan's full grown head on top and... Just Tegan's full grown head. On both of them. Yeah. Even the one named Adric. That makes it, uh, I think, more fucked up. I don't know. It's all fucked up. It's bad. We're on watch lists (laughs) now. It's possible that comment and much of this story's existence has to do with providing further explanation for the way the fifth doctor talks about his regeneration in the case of Dandrelani, saying, is this death? It feels different this time. And I noticed there were some of those lines like snuck in here. Yeah, I believe that full sort of little exchange is, is, uh, I think it's divided in two parts, but it's still in there. While the master doesn't appear, aside from an ominous laugh, this is the first fifth doctor audio drama to boast the master as the villain. Due to its placement during the final moments of Caves of Androzani, it currently is and almost certainly will always be the final audio drama in the Fifth Doctor's timeline. Unless they make an even weirder one where it's like the last two seconds. Winter 2, Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> where the Ronnie has a go at his remaining regenerations. Oh, he never met her. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Time travel. Well, she's trying to stop it from becoming Colin Baker, is her thing. Because she hates him. Yeah. She just hates his fat white face. <laughs> that stupid coat. Ugh. Let's team up with her. To our TARDIS. So away we go. <laughs> we could put in a real TARDIS sound, but let's stick with that. 
That's just what my TARDIS sounds like. It's real. It's, you know, it's like a Mark II. It's kind of shitty. Ah, fuck it then. We'll just keep doing this shitty podcast. And so this week's edition of The Twin Dilemma draws to a close. This week, Amy's choice takes it over the mind robber, proving itself the superior dreamland experience. We hope that you enjoyed your complimentary LSD tablets provided with your download. You know I'm real down with the kids. I don't think LSD is a tablet. <laughs> no, it comes on like a little piece of paper. Paper or like yeah. droplets and stuff. Uh, I've been told. You, you probably uh, uh, shoot it up into a joint. I think so, right? I think so. I think You, you smoke it like you, a cigarette. I think you, you bong it. Uh, I've been uh, Edward Big Bong's Grove. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been Fenric injected straight into my penis, Lamar. And uh, we'll uh, we'll see you next week for for more highly informed drug talk. Kids, fellow kids, uh, smoke them if you got them, shoot up uh, 420, get high every day. Blaze it. Bye. Bye. Join us next week when our theme is Offspring. Small finish. We love dumb shit.